Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse, and I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep the Stolen Bacillus by H.G. Wells. There's a subtitle uh, in at least some publications. A Tale of Anarchy. This was first published in June 12th, 1894, issue of the Pall Mall Budget, which is a place where Wells got published a lot. Our version we're reading it from is the Pearson's Magazine version from June 1905, which is handsomely illustrated throughout. Uh, I'm going to get Eric to read the story for us, and then we'll talk about this very interesting H.G. Wells story. Okie dokie. The Stolen Bacillus. This again, said the bacteriologist, slipping a glass slide under the microscope, is a preparation of the celebrated bacillus of cholera, the cholera germ. The pale-faced man peered down the microscope. He was evidently not accustomed to that kind of thing and held a limp white hand over his disengaged eye. I see very little, he said. Touch this screw, said the bacteriologist. Perhaps the microscope is out of focus for you. Eyes vary so much. Just the fraction of a turn this way or that. Ah, now I see, said the visitor. Not so very much to see after all. Little streaks and shreds of pink. And yet those little particles, those mere atomies, might multiply and devastate a city. Wonderful. He stood up and, releasing the glass slip from the microscope, held it in his hand towards a window. Scarcely visible, he said, scrutinizing the preparation. He hesitated. Are these alive? Are they dangerous now? Those have been stained and killed, said the bacteriologist. I wish for my own part we could kill and stain every one of them in the universe. I suppose, the pale man said with a slight smile, that you scarcely care to have such things about you in the living, uh, in the active state. On the contrary, we are obliged to, said the bacteriologist. Here, for instance, he walked across the room and took up one of several sealed tubes. Here is the living thing. This is a cultivation of the actual living disease bacteria. He hesitated. Bottled cholera, so to speak. A slight gleam of satisfaction appeared momentarily in the face of the pale man. It's a deadly thing to have in your possession, he said, devouring the little tube with his eyes. The bacteriologist watched the morbid pleasure in his visitor's expression. This man who had visited him that afternoon with a note of introduction from an old friend interested him from the very contrast of their dispositions. The lank black hair and deep gray eyes, the haggard expression and nervous manner, the fitful yet keen interest of his visitor were a novel change from the phlegmatic deliberations of the ordinary scientific worker with whom the bacteriologist chiefly associated. It was perhaps natural with a hearer evidently so impressionable to the lethal nature of his topic to take the most effective aspect of the matter. He held the tube in his hand thoughtfully. Yes, here is the pestilence imprisoned. Only break such a little tube as this into a supply of drinking water, say to these minute particles of life that one must needs stain and examine with the highest powers of the microscope even to see, and that one can neither smell nor taste, say to them, go forth, increase and multiply, and replenish the cisterns, and death, mysterious, untraceable death, death swift and terrible, death full of pain and dignity, would be released upon the city and go thither seeking out 
his victims. Here he would take the husband from the wife, here the child from the mother, here the statesman from his duty, and here the toiler from his trouble. He would follow the water mains creeping along streets, picking out and punishing a house here and a house there where they did not boil their drinking water, creeping into the wells of the mineral water makers, getting washed and into salad and lying dormant in ices. He would wait ready to be drunk in the horse troughs and by unwary children in the public fountains, he would soak into the soil to reappear in springs and wells at a thousand unexpected places. Once start him at the water supply and before we could ring him in and catch him again, he would have decimated the metropolis. He stopped abruptly. He had been told rhetoric was his weakness, but, but he is quite safe here, you know, quite safe. The pale-faced man nodded, his eyes shone. He cleared his throat. These anarchist rascals, said he, are fools, blind fools, to use bombs when this kind of thing is attainable. I think a gentle rap, a mere light touch of the fingernails was heard at the door. The bacteriologist opened it. Just a minute, dear, whispered his wife. When he re-entered the laboratory, his visitor was looking at his watch. I had no idea I had wasted an hour of your time, he said. Twelve minutes to four, I ought to have left by half past three. But your things are really very interesting. No, positively, I cannot stop a moment longer. I have an engagement at four. He passed out of the room, reiterating his thanks, and the bacteriologist accompanied him to the door and then returned thoughtfully along the passage to his laboratory. He was musing on the ethnology of his visitor. Certainly the man was not a Teutonic type, nor a common Latin one. A morbid product, anyhow, I am afraid, said the bacteriologist to himself. How he gloated on those cultivations of diseased germs. A disturbing thought struck him. He turned to the bench by the vapor bath and then very quickly to his writing table. Then he felt hastily in his pockets and then rushed to the door. I may have put it on the hall table, he said. Minnie, he shouted hoarsely in the hall. Yes, dear, came a remote answer. Had I anything in my hand when I spoke to you, dear, just now? Pause. Nothing, dear, because I remember blue ruin cried the bacteriologist and incontinently ran to the front door and down the steps of his house to the street. Minnie, hearing the door slam violently, ran in alarm to the window. Down the street, a slender man was getting into a cab. The bacteriologist, hatless and in his carpet slippers, was running and gesticulating wildly toward this group. One slipper came off, but he did not wait for it. He has gone mad, said Minnie. It's that horrid science of his. And opening the window would have called after him. The slender man, suddenly glancing round, seemed struck with the same idea of mental disorder. He pointed hastily to the bacteriologist, said something to the cabman. The apron of the cab slammed, the whip swished, the horse's feet clattered, and in a moment, cab and bacteriologist, hotly in pursuit, had receded up the vista of the roadway and disappeared round the corner. Minnie remained straining out of the window for a minute. Then she drew her head back into the room again. She was dumbfounded. Of course, he is eccentric, she meditated, but running about London in the height of the season, too, in his socks? A happy thought struck her. She hastily put her bonnet on, seized his shoes, went into the hall, took down his hat and light overcoat from the pegs, emerged upon the doorstep, and hailed a cab that opportunely crawled by. 
drive me up the road and round Havistock Crescent and see if we can find a gentleman running about in a velveteen coat and no hat. Velveteen coat, ma'am, and no hat. Very good, ma'am. And the cabman whipped up at once the most matter-of-fact way as if he drove to this address every day in his life. Some few minutes later, the little group of cabmen and loafers that collects around the cabmen's shelter at Haverstock Hill were startled by the passing of a cab with a ginger-colored screw of a horse driven furiously. They were silent as it went by, and then as it receded, "'That's Harry X. What's he got?' said the stout gentleman known as Old Tootles. "'He's a-using his whip, he is, too right,' said the ostler boy." Hello, said poor old Tommy Biles. Here's another bloomin' lunatic. Blowed if there ain't. It's old George, said old Tootles. And he's a drivin' a lunatic, as you say. Ain't he a clawin' out of the cab? Wonder if he's after Harry Hicks. The group round the cabman's shelter became animated. Chorus. Go it, George. It's a race. You'll catch him. Whip up. She's a goer, she is, said the ostler boy. Strike me giddy, cried old Tootles. Here I'm a-going to begin in a minute. Here's another coming, if all the kebs in Hampstead ain't gone mad this morning. It's a field mail this time, said the ostler boy. She's a-following him, said old Tootles. Usually the other way about. What's she got in her hand? Looks like a eye at. What bloomin' lark it is. Three under one on George, said the ostler boy. Next. Many went by in a perfect roar of applause. She did not like it, but she felt that she was doing her duty and whirled on down Haverstock Hill and Camden High Town and Camden Town High Street with her eyes ever intent on the animated back view of old George, who was driving her vagrant husband so incomprehensibly away from her. In the foremost cab, sat crouched in the corner, his arms tightly folded in the little tube that contained such vast possibilities of destruction gripped in his hand. His mood was a singular mixture of fear and exultation. Chiefly, he was afraid of being caught before he could accomplish his purpose. But behind this was a vaguer but larger fear of the awfulness of his crime. But his exultation far exceeded his fear. No anarchist before him had ever approached this conception of his. Ravachol, Vaillant, all those distinguished persons whose fame he had envied dwindled into insignificance beside his. He had only to make sure of the water supply and break the little tube into a reservoir. How brilliantly he had planned it forged the letter of introduction and got into the laboratory and how brilliantly he had seized his opportunity. The world should hear of him at last. All those people who had sneered at him, neglected him, preferred other people to him, found his company undesirable, should consider him at last. Death, death, death. They had always treated him as a man of no importance. All the world had been in a conspiracy to keep him under. He would teach them yet what it is to isolate a man. What was this familiar street? Great St. Andrew Street? Of course. How fared the chase? He craned out of the cab. The bacteriologist was scarcely 50 yards behind. That was bad. He would be caught and stopped yet. He felt in his pocket for money and found a half sovereign. This he thrust up through the trap in the top of the cab into the man's face. More, he shouted, if only we get away. 
The money was snatched out of his hand. Right you are, said the cabman, and the trap slammed and the lash lay along the glistening side of the horse. The cab swayed and the anarchist half standing under the trap put his hand containing the little glass tube upon the apron to preserve his balance. He felt the brittle little thing crack and the broken half of it rang upon the floor of the cab. He fell back into the seat with a curse and stared dismally at the two or three drops of moisture on the apron. He shuddered. Well, I suppose I shall be the first. Whew. Anyhow, I shall be a martyr. That's something. But it's a filthy death nevertheless. I wonder if it hurts as much as they say. Presently, a thought occurred to him. He groped between his feet. A little drop was still in the broken end of the tube, and he drank that to make sure. It was better to make sure. At any rate, he would not fail. Then it dawned upon him that there was no further need to escape the bacteriologist. In Wellington Street, he told the cabman to stop and got out. He slipped on the step and his head felt queer. It was rapid stuff, this cholera poison. He waved his cabman out of existence, so to speak, and stood on the pavement with his arms folded upon his breast, awaiting the arrival of the bacteriologist. There was something tragic in his pose. The sense of imminent death gave him a certain dignity. He greeted his pursuer with a defiant laugh. Vive l'anarchie! You are too late, my friend. I have drunk it. The cholera is abroad. The bacteriologist from his cab beamed curiously at him through his spectacles. You have drunk it. An anarchist. I see now. He was about to say something more and then checked himself. A smile hung in the corner of his mouth. He opened the apron of his cab as if to descend, at which the anarchist waved him a dramatic farewell and strode off towards Waterloo Bridge, carefully jostling his infected body against as many people as possible. The bacteriologist was so preoccupied with the vision of him that he scarcely manifested the slightest surprise at the appearance of Minnie upon the pavement with his hat and shoes and overcoat. Very good of you to bring me my things, he said, and remained lost in contemplation of the receding figure of the anarchist. You had better get in, he said, still staring. Minnie felt absolutely convinced now that he was mad and directed the cabman home on her own responsibility. Put on my shoes? Certainly, dear, said he as the cab began to turn and hid the stru strutting black figure now small in the distance from his eyes. Then suddenly something grotesque struck him, and he laughed. Then he remarked, It is really very serious, though. You see, that man came to my house to see me, and he is an anarchist. No, don't faint, or I cannot possibly tell you the rest. And, and I wanted to astonish him, not knowing he was an anarchist, and took up a cultivation of that new species of bacterium I was telling you about uh, that, that, manif that infest, and I think cause, the blue patches upon various monkeys. And like a fool, I said it was Asiatic cholera, and he ran away with it to poison the water of London, and he certainly might have made things look blue for this civilized city. And now he has swallowed it. Of course, I cannot say what will happen. But, you know, it turned that kitten blue and the three puppies in patches and the sparrow bright blue. But the bother is I shall have the, all the trouble and expense of preparing some more. Put, put on my coat on this hot day? Why? Why? 
because we might miss Mrs. Jabber? My dear, Mrs. Jabber is not a draft, but why should I wear a coat on a hot day because of Mrs. Oh, very well. <laughs> okay, so um, I have a few questions about this, um, but I do note a couple of things. One, it's a, it's a mad scientist story. Um, or, I mean, she thinks, Minnie thinks he's a mad scientist and right. he's dotty for sure. Uh, um, yep. but, uh, the anarchist, uh, is less of an anarchist than he is a suicidal, uh, resentful. <laughs> I mean, he, his heroes are French bombers, right? But, uh, right. I'm not sure, I'm not sure what point. It's got a twist, right? It's got a real good twist. Um, but I'm not sure what point Wells is trying to make with this because it's just it's it seems much more like a slice of life than it does um his usual uh I I really don't understand why he wrote this story. I think he's trying to do something and I'm I'm missing what it is. Well, in that case that's a problem. Uh, on Wells's part, because he didn't make it clear enough. But I, I think, I think the story. I think there there are two stories here. Okay. The first story is the one you read the first time, mm-hmm. and it's kind of a j- joke. Yes. Right. And, and the only sensible person in it is Minnie. Right. Uh, but but she's only sensible because she is a well-regulated, self-regulated Victorian bourgeois wife. Um. Which is, in fact, something that comes in for criticism. I think the second story is revealed on rereading. Um, let me let me explain. Mm-hmm. On the first reading, when the bacteriologist realizes that he's had his bottle of stuff stolen, um, he yells out, "Blue ruin!" Right. cried the bacteriologist. But in fact, when I read it the first time, I thought, Blue Ruin. Well, what a, a quaint expostulation. Sure. Uh, right. But in fact, Blue Ruin is the name of the bacterium. Right. That's in that bottle. Mm-hmm. So on second reading, we realize that the, the story gives us a hint about what's to happen. Similarly, um, when we we read what the the anarchist is doing, um, uh, he is in he's in the cab with. Uh, let me see if I can find the exact phrase. Um, yes, um, the man in the foremost cab sat crouched in the corner, his arms tightly folded, and the little tube that contains such vast possibilities of destruction gripped in his hand. On first reading, we think that that's the omniscient narrator right. reminding us that it's cholera. But on second reading, instead of showing that we've been fooled, it says we're looking through the eyes of the anarchist. Mm-hmm. He's the one who believes he has this in his hand, but he doesn't. Right. In fact, on rereading, we get closer and closer analysis of each of the individual characters. They, they, they number the, the principal ones, um, the anarchist the scientist, and his wife. Mm -hmm. But in addition to that, we see the connections among these people. 
Minnie stays at the window just as the two men are hanging out of their cab windows looking over the aprons. And there is a group of cabbies who watch them go by. And Harry Ix, Tommy Boyle, <laughs> George, and Toodles. <laughs> exactly. And explicitly, it says, the group round the cabman's shelter became animated. Chorus, colon, go it, George. It's a race. You'll catch them. Whip up. It is, if I may use the phrase that we know from studying the Sophocles and such, it's a Greek chorus. Mm -hmm. There is society here. Now, what do we know about society? Well, why does, why does the fellow have to put, the bacteriologist have to put his coat on at the end? Because of Mrs. Jabber. Mm -hmm. Well, to jabber means to just talk, you know, on and on and on. But the fact is, Minnie knows that what the world thinks makes a difference. Mm -hmm. And once he's back in his wife's domain, because she told the cabman to go home on her own responsibility, he accedes to her wishes. What I think we have here is an example of what Wells always shows us in his great scientific romances, like The War of the Worlds, for example. Mm-hmm. That the scientist is wrong-headed. Yeah. He's smart, but he's wrong-headed. He's wrong-headed because he doesn't listen to the constraints of society. But as in the War of the Worlds, what happens that could be destruction doesn't destroy us only by chance. The ultimate story here is about the necessity of the scientist being more sensible, sensible being defined as what society understands, even though as individuals, they are going to be just silly Mrs. Jabber or a bunch of cabmen making a race where no race exists. Mm. Because otherwise, you get the arrogance that marks both the anarchist and the scientist. And you can tell that it marks them both because in the beginning, the anarchist has that smile mm -hmm. of satisfaction when he finds that he's in the presence of cholera. And at the end, the bacteriologist has the smile when he realizes he's fooled the anarchist. Mm. In addition, we can see that the, the bacteriologist has his own political precon preconceptions. Mm -hmm. Why does he wonder about the... Uh, the ethnology of the man who came to visit him, not a Teutonic type. Right. So the scientist, in fact, has his own prejudices. That science, in the form of the scientist, comes in in a way to be as, as wrong an individual in society as the anarchist lets us understand that the anarchist is right when he says society will see what it means to isolate a man. And if indeed it is society that isolated him rather than the other way around, <laughs> that is terrible, which is, by the way, one of the, one of the underlying themes of Wells is the invisible man. Mm -hmm. What is it happens when you are isolated? But here the scientist has isolated himself. The stolen bacillus is not death and destruction. The stolen bacillus is the opportunity that the scientist has created for himself to become outstanding. When in fact, 
He didn't need to be any more outstanding. He has a loving wife, a, a, a decent income, some reputation, friends. He just needs to be part of society and do his work. And that's what shows up in this, this funny story <laughs> about a, a stolen bacillus. I, but I think it only shows up on a second reading. You've got to really get into yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. It no, it's, it, it, it feels like he pulls the rug out from under us, right? Um, I, I have a question. At what point does the bacteriologist know that he's stolen the wrong bacillus? He, the, the, the anarchist, supposedly, he's an anarchist, he, he's stolen the bacillus in order to kill everybody with cholera. But did he pick up the wrong vial on purpose, or does he not have no, the vial? No, there's no wrong vial. That's right. No, 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 there's, there's no wrong vial. The, the bacteriologist didn't have live cholera. Right. And so when yeah. he does this, this sort of show, and there's a beautiful paragraph, or, or multiple paragraphs, in fact, where he talks about all the things that will happen, right? Here, he would yes. take the husband from the wife, he, the, and he's personifying cholera as a he, the child right. from its mother. Here, the statements from his duty. And here, the toiler from his trouble. Here, would follow the water mains, creep along streets, picking up and punishing a house here and the house there that did not boil their drink. Like, he's really getting into the idea. And then, you know, uh, people who wash their salads with this and the horses and the troughs, and it would devastate a, a, or decimate the metropolis. And, like, you can see... They're both sort of salivating at the idea. But one is doing yes. it as like a kind of um, uh, yeah, the power of science. And the other one's like, yes, and I will get my revenge. <laughs> exactly. I, I They're two madmen. Well, you know, as, as, as you read this, I mean, as you read that long paragraph with all the different things, it sounds just like Wells mm -hmm. telling us mm -hmm. what's happening in the War of the Worlds. Yes. But in fact, Wells is smart enough to let us see – this isn't Wells. This is the scientist who realizes, whoops, rhetoric was his weakness. Yes. He'd been told that. Yes. Right? As Wells may have been told, although this is quite early in his career, um, where rhetoric is my weakness. So, indeed, what, in what way a weakness? The only audience for that paragraph is the anarchist. Mm -hmm. When the anarchist is thinking to himself what they will will say, there was death, 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 wonderful, they will say this about me, that. Mm. The two of them are both trying to, but one has an audience, the other one does not, right? We just get his thoughts. Right. Uh, right. But why then, you say, if, if, why does he say it? He says it because he's trying to make an impression. He wants his audience, just as the Greek chorus wants its audience, even if they have to talk to each other. Mm -hmm. So why then is he rushing after him so radically since he knows all along he didn't have cholera? He had this other thing. Uh, indeed, the only cholera he had was ones already killed and stained. The reason he didn't have it, he said, that the reason he was running so quickly is um, the trouble was I had all the trouble of making it again. Right. Right. And well, 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 that's, well, what, that's why he wants it back, because it's his work that's going to have to be reproduced. And uh, what does it do? It, it's the blue ruin, right? It makes kittens blue and sparrows blue. It's, and it's exactly. going to make this man blue. And we've got the, the staining under the glass. It's almost like it's almost like this story is about um, putting people under a microscope. 
and and under the microscope is going to be this dead uh, anarchist, probably dead not because of the disease that he's been given that turns him blue, but dead because of you know <laughs> the police coming after him for being such an obvious suspect. He's blue. He stole it. <laughs> he's the one. He's literally the one. Um, there's a there's a line. Um, uh, it, it turns. It really is a comedy because there's a line at the end when he or near the end when he's he's out of the cab and he's tr- trying to deliberately infect people and the the phrase is carefully jostling. <laughs> yes. Right? So it's almost like this is it, 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 he sets up like a disaster story, right? Oh my god, it's a lab leak. We're all gonna die, and that's what we think, right? But then. <laughs> it all comes to nothing because the worst thing that can happen is he can make some people blue. <laughs> and and as you say, this is a comedy. Yes. Right? The War of the Worlds is not a comedy. No. But the War of the Worlds, we escape, we, the general world, you know, escape London, escapes destruction accidentally. Mm-hmm. Right? A bacterium saves us. A bacterium unanticipated by the Martians. Here in this comedy, London is saved by a bacterium, a bacterium that saves us by turning the anarchist blue. Mm -hmm. Accidental in both cases, one comedy, one tragedy, both trying to get us to understand science is marvelous, science is powerful, science belongs within society. Underlying this There's something about which for the next decade, again and again, Wells will understand there is always more to say. Thanks very much for listening. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash SFF audio.